better use of its own resources. You're listening to the news on RTHK. We interrupt this program this morning to bring you a special report, dollars and cents, or lack of it. Yeah, just joking, we have no dollars here and very little cents, just a bit of fun with business and finance. Facebook can no longer say that they are not in the hardware business, so it doesn't really quite match up with their DNA. Well, that's just to get it started. Evelyn Rusley there from the Wall Street Journal. Facebook getting slammed on Wall Street. More in a minute. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. In the headlines this morning, the Fed gives a thumbs down to HSBC, to Citigroup and others in its stress test. The market gives a big thumbs down to candy crush maker King in its IPO. And as I mentioned there, Facebook also given the thumbs down and its virtual reality buy. And investors generally thumb their nose at stocks right across the board and send all the major indices lower. Just some of the stories we're featuring this morning. It wasn't all bad news. Most of the banks that passed the Fed stress test uh, raised their dividends in a fairly big way. Bank of America, for instance, quintupled its dividend and others were fairly aggressive as well. We get more now on the Fed's stress test with Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker. Citigroup, as every bank did, asked the Fed for permission to return capital to shareholders, more capital to shareholders, an increase in its dividend, currently a penny, or a larger buyback. And Citigroup was rejected by the Fed on a qualitative basis because there are two bases under which the Fed evaluates the banks. A quantitative basis, which is exactly as it sounds, a numbers-based analysis of a bank's capital resiliency, let's say, and a qualitative assessment that takes into consideration things like internal controls and corporate governance and a bank's ability to identify risks. And on that basis, Citigroup failed, which is to say that Citigroup will not be allowed to to increase its dividend or buy back more stock. The capital plans of the American units of three international banks, HSBC, which I already mentioned, as well as Santander and Royal Bank of Scotland, were also rejected. Mike McKee offers a little perspective now on the Fed's machinations. Two important points about this. After 2008, because there was a bailout, the bank regulators, including the Fed, decided that we're going to have to raise capital standards. You're going to have to have more money, not stuffed under the mattress, but more money available in case of loan losses. So that decision was made. Now, what are your risks? How how risky is it that you're going to lose that money? That's where the disagreement comes in. And Eric and I both know, because we talked to a lot of officials uh, behind the scenes in the wake of the financial crisis, at that time the banks didn't know. They didn't even know what their risks were. So the Fed and the other regulars are trying to get them to focus on this, figure it out in advance, know where the bodies are buried, basically, and there are going to be disagreements about the various types of structured products that are out there and how much risk they have. And that's where the Fed and the banks are fighting right now. How much risk is any one particular thing uh, that's in a basket? In the case of HSBC, the Fed cited inadequate governance and weak internal controls in its capital planning. Well, coming up on the program in our special segments, is China about to announce a free trade zone for Beijing and neighboring areas? Joining us for that will be Ben Cavender from the China Market Research Group. We'll also take a look at tax changes for American passport holders in Hong Kong. Our government here says it will share your tax information with U.S. authorities. Taxman Paul Gillis 
will help us understand more on that. He says it's a major disruptor to the current status quo. And Peter Wynn Williams from the Henley Group will be along to help us take a look at markets. Facebook sank the most overnight since September of 2012 after it bought virtual reality headset maker Oculus VR. The shares were down 6%. Well, he says uh, that this could be one of the most social experiences platforms out there. But a lot of analysts are kind of still waiting to see how that susses out. I mean, this is a hardware company. Uh, Facebook can no longer say that they are not in the hardware business. So it doesn't really quite match up with their DNA. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talked about how this would create interesting experiences, not just in gaming, which is what a lot of people have seen the Oculus Rift for, but for perhaps the way you interact interact with your doctor or for classrooms and kind of having a virtual reality setting for classrooms. So he's betting on something larger, the details of which we may not know today. So that's Evelyn Rusley there from the Wall Street Journal. She talked about what he's betting on. And the market wasn't betting on Facebook again. The shares down 6%. Overall stocks fell for a third time in four days. Traders cited Ukraine as one reason. Uh, you heard uh, the president talking earlier. Some also said that the market just lacked direction and seemed confused. King Digital, the maker of the Candy Crush game, slumped 16% on its first day of trading. The S&P 500 was down 0 Point seven percent at eighteen fifty two, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost ninety eight points to sixteen thousand two hundred sixty eight. Let's welcome our first guest this morning, Peter Wynn Williams, investment director and partner at the Henley Group. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Yes, very good. Nice to have you on the program. First, what's your overall feel for the markets? I think the markets at the moment actually are, are looking uh, reasonably reasonably happy. I mean, there are, though, I think, in, in the background, uh, an awful lot of very worrying uh, uh, factors that we need to uh, take into account in, in the longer term. But in the short term, I think you know quantitative easing will will continue to support the markets. What are those worrying factors you refer to? Well, actually, it's, it's tied in with what your earlier correspondent was saying, really, about the the stress tests with the with the banks in in two thousand and eight. Uh, I think roughly around uh, 900 institutions altogether received bailout money. And those banks essentially are are still insolvent. And that's an issue, you know, we we really need to um, deal with before we can move forward on a a sustained basis. That's kind of a value judgment. I'm sure the banks would disagree. Take a bank (laughs) like, look at HSBC, look at Bank of America. They have sold so many assets and raised so much money. How can you say that they're insolvent? They have. But the the, the issue is that in in 2009, the the Accounting Standards Board allowed them to to, uh, record on their balance sheets uh, the the toxic assets that they own at pretty much uh, any value that they or their computer systems chose. And this has caused you know, massive distortions, really, in, in the whole system, which need to be addressed uh, before we can be uh, you know, back on a sustainable basis again. I think a lot of people like mark-to-market, particularly when they want to criticize an institution that isn't marking-to-market on assets that seem to be valued a lot less. Yeah. But what about all of these companies, uh, you know, like, for instance, people who own a lot of land in Hong Kong? Look how elevated those values are. And the same people who think we should mark-to-market on the downside think we shouldn't mark to market on the upside because it's phony value. Well, certainly, I think it's all about prudence, isn't it, really? I think if you want to be uh, uh, to have your institutions uh, uh, run on a prudent basis, then that's probably not, not a bad idea. But I think there's a big difference between uh, the property developers and, and the financial institutions who uh, uh, you know, have, are playing a completely different game. 
I was reading an interesting piece by Andy Xie yesterday. Uh, it was in uh, uh, it was in a magazine in China, and then it was reprinted in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and he was saying that uh, he thinks there are some large bubbles in China, not least of which uh, the online internet craze, as well as a property bubble and a high yield bubble. You tend to be a furrowed brow, sort of nervous type. Do you agree? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think Japan had its credit crunch in, in, in 1989. America had its credit crunch in 2008. I think China's is starting you know, right now. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a difficult time for China coming forward. So how do you get out of the way of that avalanche if it, um, if it falls? Well, I think it's uh, uh, the, the key point, really, I suppose, is to, is to get out of the system and, and to uh, avoid financial assets and to keep as far as you can in, in real assets. Because the thing that you're saying is not just markets. You're talking about an economy that would likely implode. That means that all of the business managers listening to this program who conduct business in China, your advice to them would be to somehow get out. I, I think they certainly need to uh, look very carefully at their counterparty risk, yes, and I think need, need, they need to look at their credit exposures and the exposures of their, of their partners too. So you like physical assets, so presumably that doesn't mean property in Hong Kong and China, but it does mean gold. It does mean it does mean gold. Yes, I think property is uh, is an interesting one. I mean, I think uh, if you've got unleveraged property, then in the longer term it'll be it'll be fine. In in the short term, there could certainly be some issues there. Yeah. We saw some other headlines uh, overnight. Uh, Tencent, uh, the largest internet company in Asia, has agreed to pay about 500 million U.S. dollars for a 28% stake in South Korea's CJ Games. Uh, back to Andy Xie and his point. Uh, do you think that all of this um, virtual reality and internet and games and uh, online e-commerce does it add value at all in your view? Does it uh, lead to productivity gains in an economy or is it just really switching physical buys to online buys and so what? It's just like moving a pile of cash from point A to point B. Yes, it's not, uh, it's not particularly productive, is it? No, but uh, certainly there's, there's lots of money to be made about it if you place your bets correctly. So where would you be placing your bets now besides uh, gold? I think uh, you know in, in the short term. I think the, uh, the the equity markets will continue to perform. Uh, you know, generally, I think um, uh, uh, so that they're, they're receiving this uh, the stimulus from the uh, quantitative easing programs, uh, and uh, I think that will will support the markets going forward for for some time. The, the question, of course, is as, as always with these issues, is uh, how long. And uh, there are certainly a lot of people who think that uh, the uh, the fundamentals for the economy, particularly in, in, in the West, are uh, very, very shaky at the moment and, and uh, quantitative easing may need to be uh, dialed up rather than dialed down through the tapering program uh, you know, sometime later this year. Do you think that's possible? Do you think the Fed would reverse direction? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's, it's likely rather than possible, yeah. That means you really don't see um, things getting better, conditions getting better in the U.S. economy particularly. They're clearly not. I mean, you know, I think America, in fact, is in a depression and has been for years. And I think it'll be some time before that they get out of it. How do you define that depression? Uh, yeah, it's difficult. I guess it's um, the, the way I think of it is it's, it's a period of, uh, of uh, rolling recessions interspersed with uh, sort of subpar growth. It goes on, can go on for a very long time. 
And I think uh, the, the problem with uh, with the US is that uh, a lot of the data on which uh, which we're seeing coming out on the economy, you know, including uh, government statistics, are really not that reliable these days. Are you in the uh, Jim Grant camp? That uh, I mean, he cites he's a guy who writes this uh, interest rate Grant's interest yes. rate observer, um, and he's a very sharp guy. He, uh, he says that nobody really realized that the U.S. was in a depression in 1920 and 21 mm. because the fed it was so new that what it did was it actually raised interest rates during that period yes all hell broke loose yes. but then things recovered a, a year or two later and we had the roaring 20s are you in that camp yes I, I am yeah i think i think jim's right you'd like to see higher interest rates now I wouldn't like to see higher interest rates. No, I think that, uh, that that's not the way to go. I think what we well, wouldn't need to that watch- flush things out. I mean, it, guys like you seem to be, um, you know, Schumpeterian in a sense. Let it crash, and then we'll hmm. build uh, build from the ashes. Well, I, I think what, what what really we need to do is to is to have a, a reset. You know, we need to reset the monetary system and, and the banking system and, and the currency system and, and uh, start again on a sustainable basis. Because at the moment, the uh, the level of debt that we have uh, in in the West in particular and uh, in Japan too in the, in the developed world is uh, just completely un- unsustainable and needs to be uh, dealt with before we can move forward. Okay, it's a nice segue into this story. Um and I'll do this and then have a final comment from you. Fears, of course, growing that this developer in uh, Zhejiang, which has been teetering on the edge of insolvency, that um, that this could trigger a crisis in China. The owner of Xinrun Real Estate has been detained for illegal fundraising, and much of the company's half a billion U.S. dollar debt is believed to be uh, owned by unlicensed lenders. Let's get more now in this report from the BBC's Linda Yu. It's coming hot on the heels of China's first ever default on a corporate bond. And what was striking about it was the Chinese government allowed a very small solar power company to, well, not pay uh, back uh, creditors. And that was the first default in China. But what makes this property developer rather extraordinary is that part of the money that it borrowed comes from the so-called shadow banking system. It sounds rather sinister, but in China, all that means is that um, it's borrowed money from, say, trusts or financial institutions or, well, maybe shadier characters, but basically sources of money which are not due to uh, a bank. So lending which is not uh, by institutions with a banking license. And so this company has been hanging on. And I suppose the reason it's a test case is the uh, reason a solar power company, Chari, was allowed to go uh, and not pay back its debt and have default is because it's not linked to the shadow banking system. So if this company does default and ends up not repaying some of its uh, loans, then that would be the first default where some of the borrowing comes from shadow banks. And there's always been a concern amongst the Chinese authorities that if you associate default with shadow banking, you could be opening up a whole can of worms. In other words, no one really knows the scale of the bar on the shadow banking system, but estimates are that debt now exceeds 200% of Chinese GDP. Yeah, that's Linda Yu from the BBC reporting. Peter Wynn Williams, uh, the investment director at the Henley Group, is still with me. Um, there was also something – I've got another guest that will comment on that, Peter, so no need to um, to put your um, shadow banking hat on in China. Uh, <laughs> but there was this other thing that happened overnight. The market was all a Twitter uh, on Wall Street over a rather massive bearish bet in the options market. A trader expressed a significantly bearish view on the market, buying hundreds and hundreds 
goods of contract uh, to the downside. The trade effectively a 2.8 billion U.S. dollar short bet on the S&P 500. Was that you? I wish it were. No, <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, well, if the market goes up like it has been, you probably wish it wasn't you because <laughs> he or she is going to lose their shirt. Yeah. Okay. Just a final comment uh, uh, from you, and then we'll move on. Um, so you're, you're very cautious, uh, but you think in the short term some money can be made. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, in, in the short term, they're, they're determined to keep the markets buoyant, and I think that they will succeed. So they, as far as I'm concerned, that the, the bigger concern really is the is the other systemic issues, and uh, how we're going to sort those out over the next few years. All right, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter Wynn Williams from the Henley Group. Yeah, I did that interview uh, on my horse, uh, just riding in, parking it at the stable there, tying it up. And uh, I'd like to say good morning now to Ben Cavender, analyst at the China Market Research Group. Ben, good morning. Good morning. So China's planning a free trade zone that might jointly boost development in Beijing and the surrounding areas. According to a report from the China Securities Journal, the zone might comprise the cities of Beijing and Tianjin. So we'd like to talk about that. And we'd also like to talk about the weight of debt in China. How are you this morning? Uh, doing very well. Thank you. I think you're probably not as nervous uh, as our previous guest, are you? No, I, I tend to be more of a, a cautious optimist on China, I think. I mean, there's some very real problems here, but overall, uh, I think the government has a reasonable handle on things, and we should be okay going forward. So the very real problems that you refer to, uh, you think they can handle them. What are those very real problems? Well, you know, as you just mentioned in the, the earlier piece looking at shadow banking, you know, there are some major debt issues right now, especially with uh, a lot of the local governments that have been, you know, lending, borrowing money, and, and sort of generally out of control of the situation. I think that the central government's going to have to take a really close look at that. Um, you know, the World Bank just came out with this report about urbanization in China and some of the things that the government needs to do to kind of clean up the situation a little bit here. And I think that sort of plays into things. Right now, government's generating, you know, almost 40% of its tax base from land sales. Uh, that's a huge issue right now because it, it just isn't sustainable um, in the long term. And so I think one of the things we're going to see happening is sort of the development of a new mechanism for taxation that's going to allow them to earn revenues from other sources. So, for example, property taxes. Yes. So that might uh, be able to uh, alleviate the pressure on selling land to raise money. Has it not been the provinces mainly that have been selling the land to raise the money? Yeah, it's been mainly the provinces that have been doing it. Um, they haven't really had another way to, to generate great revenues to, to handle all the major infrastructure projects they've been doing. And I, I think that's where one of the, sort of the big issues comes in. And I think reforming it's going to take time because the provinces, provincial governments tend to not necessarily be that organized. They're sort of on a five-year plan. People that are in charge kind of want to get in, build as much as they can and get out so that they look good. Um, but that's going to have to change in the long term in order for us to see sustainable growth here, even if that grows a little bit slower. How does a country with a large uh, trade surplus um, have a problem with raising capital? Well, I mean, I think right now the, the issue is just sort of speed and scale. You know, they're trying to build so quickly. There aren't a lot of great mechanisms for, you know, getting money from the banks or from people that have it into the hands of, say, a, a private developer without relying on sort of some of these unregulated shadow banking systems, which can cause 
you know, major issues as we're starting to see now with companies really not being able to pay back the interest, not really being able to put together a product they can actually sell. China's a little bit overbuilt right now. In a sense, um, in reforming the banking sector, you saw one interesting um possible pursuit of that, which was allowing Alibaba and Tencent to sell financial products. They've built up a lot of trust. They have a huge customer base. Um, yet now we see the authorities semi-blocking that. Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the smart money saying about that? Well, you know, you look at what the government does, and I think they're genuinely interested in trying reforms and trying out new concepts that could potentially work here. But at the same time, they're very cautious. And so they look at Alibaba, they look at Tencent, they see just how popular this sort of thing has been with consumers, and they start to worry that maybe things are going to go too far too fast. So I think we're going to see, you know, heavier regulation. We may see them taking a step back and saying, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But long term, I suspect that this kind of thing is going to work out and it's going to develop further because as long as the government can control it and monitor it, it it should work okay. Yeah, I mentioned this interesting piece from Andy Xie in Taijin yesterday uh, or a couple of days ago. I don't know when it ran, but it ran in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about uh, none of this stuff that's happening uh, in online and Internet uh, activity is really boosting productivity in China. I know that's kind of a deep question and maybe it's a little bit of a curveball to throw to you, but have you thought about that at all? Well, you know, I think probably in some sense he's right. I think the big issue that we've got here right now, and I don't think there's been a great solution yet, is for a smaller business or a mid-sized business, you know, how do you make sure that they're able to get the funding they need to continue to develop? I think the big problem China has is smaller companies are not driving the economy the way they should, and they're over-reliant on, say, shadow banking, for example, to get a hold of some of that money, and it really makes them unproductive because they're they're having to pay back these you know ridiculous interest rates if they're able to pay back the money at all. So I think that's kind of the area where we're, we're going to have to see change going forward. And what about this free trade zone for the Beijing area? That might lead to development, as we said, in Beijing. Uh, does Beijing really need more development now? You know, I, I, I don't know necessarily that Beijing or Tianjin, that whole area, needs more development. But I think that, you know, as they look at the free trade zone they had in Shanghai and they look at sort of bringing those policies into other places – Beijing and Tianjin may be kind of a a logical next step for them, just because that's already an area where you see a lot of investment from foreign companies. Um, It's seen as sort of a safe area for investment rather than a city that maybe people haven't heard of before. So I think as they roll this out, we're probably going to see some of these free trade zones popping up in areas that are already pretty well developed. So Beijing, Tianjin, maybe, you know, more work down in South China um, before it rolls out to smaller cities. But I think the overall plan is long term to have more of these set up. And so we're going to see how that rolls out over the course of this year. Okay, Ben, thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Ben Cavender, analyst at the China Market Research Group. I'd like to say good morning now to Paul Gillis, uh, CPA professor of practice and co-director of the International MBA program at the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. Good morning, Mr. Gillis. Good morning. Yeah, this new arrangement uh, between the IRS and Hong Kong, uh, this could be worrisome to Americans, uh, although only to Americans who are not playing by the rules. Uh, but you say it's a major disruptor. Why? Well, I think uh, Hong Kong has long been a 
a place where many Americans uh, put money that have uh, been putting it there since the Vietnam War, and uh, uh, the IRS is uh, in the process of coming to get it. And how are they coming to get it? Because it might be one thing if the government agrees to share uh, information about how much money people made here, but does it require that the banks will have to divulge information? Well, what uh, you know, the, the IRS has been doing is working out these agreements with countries around the world uh, to get access to information that those countries have. Uh, the emphasis recently has been on uh, on tax havens, uh, places like the Cayman Islands or the BVI, and now Hong Kong's been brought into that. Uh, what they what they have the right to do now is basically get anything that the uh, tax authorities in Hong Kong have, uh, such as tax returns that are filed in uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, where this is going to likely go is to extend it to the banks um, with a agreement <clears throat> that the uh, banks will have to provide information on U.S. customers uh, to the IRS. To date, why have HSBC, Hang Seng Bank, and others here been able to resist that pressure, particularly when you see what's happened with UBS and Credit Suisse? Well, I think uh, they're, they've been coming under the uh, under the highlight. I mean, they've got local... Uh, 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 local laws that, uh, that provide bank secrecy, and uh, those laws are being modified under pressure from the U.S. that will basically make it very difficult for banks like HSBC to do business in the United States if uh, Hong Kong doesn't come around to uh, agreeing to these FATCA uh, uh, agreements whereby the banks will be able to provide information to the IRS about Americans. What's also interesting is that there are a lot of Hong Kong people with American passports that may get caught up in this. Yeah, I mean, every, the United States is a worldwide tax system. So if you are a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident, you have to pay tax on your income no matter where it is. Um, and many, uh, many people who picked up U.S. passports have, uh, have ignored that rule. And uh, and they're vulnerable in this situation to uh, to being caught up in this uh, in this process. And walk us through the pace of uh, development in the FATCA legislation and when it all sort of comes together to a head. Yeah, it all comes to a head uh, right now uh, in July. Uh, it's been extended uh, um, because it's been difficult to make arrangements. Uh, two of the major holdouts right now have been Hong Kong and uh, uh, and China. Uh, China has already has a tax treaty with the United States, which provides for information sharing, uh, much uh, virtually the same thing that uh, uh, Hong Kong has just signed. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, people have been hearing Hong, that China's getting ready to, to make an agreement with the FATCA to be able to have their banks uh, also release information. So I think this is all going to come together um, in the next few months. It is a sensitive point because, as was highlighted by the Cathay pilots, uh, there's a serious degree of privacy here, which sounds like uh, is being sort of shunted off to the side now. Yes, I mean, this has been the case of, of tax sharing agreements generally, and clearly the Swiss were the ones who, uh, who made the biggest deal about this when, uh, when the issue for finally came up. Um, in, the, uh, uh, in today's environment, uh, the privacy concerns are being pushed aside uh, to, uh, in the interest of letting countries collect revenue um, uh, for uh, taxes that their citizens owe. Okay, Paul, thank you.
Paul Gillis, CPA professor of practice and co-director of the International MBA program, as mentioned at the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University, the U.S. governments and others saying. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. They tend to get fooled a lot, and uh, we know that to be the case. Uh, that's why there are lawyers. Well, let's take a look at uh, markets and how they're moving here in the final minutes of this program. The Nikkei down 209 points, definitely a day of risk off today, or so it seems at the moment. Australia down as well, down 1%. The Nikkei down 1.5%, although in Seoul, the Kospi is flat. Dollar-yen, 101.85, so that's the dollar weaker against the yen. The euro, 1.3788, so all of that augurs for people taking money out of risk. Weather today, humid and foggy with some clouds, uh, but mainly fine during portions of the day. Maximum temperature, 26 degrees. Money for nothing. The news with Samantha Butler. An international contingent of military and civilian aircraft is setting off once again from the Australian city of Perth to search for the missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. They'll join a number of ships to scour a remote section of the Indian Ocean where a French satellite has located a debris field of 120 objects that could be from the missing plane. The BBC's Alistair Leithhead reports from Kuala Lumpur. This new satellite image is the best lead so far. The objects were spread across a wide area, close to where a Chinese satellite identified something larger than